According to a plaque on the Brooklyn Bridge, back of every great work we can find the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman. When John Roebling died and his son Washington was struck ill, it was Washington's young wife Emily Warren Roebling who worked day and night to ensure that the Brooklyn Bridge was built. Welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Samantha, and today I'll be telling you a little bit about Emily Warren Roebling. But let's step back for a moment to consider why she is significant. My story must begin with the Brooklyn Bridge. Most people thought that the Brooklyn Bridge would be an impossible feat. Any bridge spanning the East River would have to be longer than any previously existing suspension bridge. In order to build the bridge, John A. Roebling, its original designer, proposed the use of huge stone anchorages, the like of which had never been seen in the United States. He also planned to use steel instead of iron, which seems like an obvious step in retrospect, but was a truly novel innovation at the time. The project, estimated to cost over $7 million, was approved only when the particularly frigid winter of 1867 to 1868 made the East River impassable by boat and ferry, and it was completed in 1883 largely because of the tireless effort of Emily Warren Roebling, who oversaw the construction of the bridge in an era when engineering was considered to be strictly within the male sphere and when no woman, well, no women before Roebling, that is, had ever been allowed to appear before the American Society of Civil Engineers. So, who was Emily Roebling? Born on September 23, 1843, in the village of Cold Spring, New York, Emily was the penultimate of twelve children born to Sylvanus and Phoebe Warren, uh, though only six of their children survived to adulthood. Emily grew up along the banks of the Hudson as a member of a solidly middle-class family. Though not particularly wealthy, her father was a prominent figure and served in the New York State Assembly. He was also a close personal friend of Washington Irving. Otherwise, we don't know a whole lot about Emily's childhood. When Emily was 16, her father died. At that point, her oldest brother, Governor Kemble Warren, and I just love his name, Governor is the first name, um, but apparently he didn't love it that much because he was always referred to as G.K., took over her care. Fourteen years older than his sister, G.K. had already established himself by the time their father died. He had graduated second in his class at West Point and then had gone on to many exciting campaigns. During the Civil War, he rose to the rank of general and commanded the Fifth Corps of the Army of the Potomac. Apparently, G.K. was very fond of his younger siblings and believed that they should receive a good education, even the girls. So, in 1858, Emily moved to Washington, D.C., where she was enrolled in the Georgetown Visitation Convent. While she was there, she studied a variety of subjects, always proving herself to be unusually bright. She was also particularly interested in science. In 1864, Emily visited her brother at his encampment in Virginia, and while she was there, she met his aide, Washington Roebling. Washington was the oldest son of John A. Roebling, an eccentric genius who had immigrated to the U.S. from Germany and then made millions by introducing and manufacturing iron rope. Unsatisfied with this achievement, John Roebling had achieved fame by building suspension bridges over the Niagara River and elsewhere. Of his three sons, Washington was the only one to follow in his father's footsteps. Washington studied engineering at RPI, 
before enlisting in the Union Army in 1861. Washington was apparently completely infatuated with Emily from first sight, and after he met her at a military ball, he wrote to one of his sisters to inform her that Emily had captured your brother Washi's heart. And here I love that he refers to himself as Washi. Washi was already convinced that he would marry Emily, and indeed they did get married in Cold Spring in January of 1865 in a double ceremony with Emily's brother Edgar. After they married, the young couple moved to Cincinnati, where Washington helped his father build his latest bridge, and in 1867, the couple were sent to Germany so that Washington could study the construction of caissons, which would be necessary to make the Brooklyn Bridge a success. While they were staying in Mulhausen, Germany, the couple's only child, a son named John, was born. They, they returned to New York in 1868 to start work on the bridge. Although the Brooklyn Bridge was his father's vision, Washington was trained in civil engineering and worked with his father before, and he had received specialist training that would be needed to build the bridge. And that was a lucky thing, too, because one day, while waiting for the ferry on the Brooklyn side of the river, John's foot was crushed against a piling by the ferry. John A. Roebling was undeniably a genius, a self-made millionaire descended from a simple tobacco owner, but John was also a very hard man. He was strongly opinionated and had very few friends. He also had strong opinions about medicine. And I'm telling you this now because after his foot was crushed, John Roebling took over his own care. Being a strong believer in hydropathy, which was the belief that water could cure any ailment, John had his crushed foot immersed in cold water and then insisted upon undergoing surgery without any form of anesthesia. He then fired physician after physician, ignoring all their advice, even when it became evident that John had developed tetanus. Eight days after the accident, John succumbed to his illness and died. When John A. Roebling died, the bridge project was almost terminated, but his son Washington, who had been involved with the project from the beginning, fought to continue and was promoted to head engineer. The first part of the bridge building project was the construction of the caissons, which were effectively upside down boxes constructed of wood and iron, which had to be lowered into the water. These boxes were then filled with compressed air and they provided a space for the workers to dig down into the riverbed until they reached the bedrock, at which point the caissons would be filled with concrete and become the foundation for the bridge's towers. This work was extremely dangerous, as I'm sure you can imagine. Not only did the compressed air being pumped into the caissons present the continual risk of fire, but the pressure was extremely high and it increased as the workers dug deeper and as the towers of limestone and granite were built on top of the caissons. The workers used a system of airlocks to get into the caissons and back out again. This system was supposed to allow their bodies to get used to changes in pressure gradually. However, if they did not spend enough time in the airlocks, nitrogen bubbles could form in their blood, causing them to develop caissons disease or the bends. The symptoms of this disease included cramps, dizziness, paralysis, and even death. 
One day in December 1870, while Washington was supervising the construction of the caisson on the Brooklyn side of the river, a fire broke out. The young engineer was forced to travel to the surface too quickly and was stricken by the bends. Over the next several weeks, his attacks became more frequent and severe, so that by 1872, he was unable to return to the work site at all. Later, as he reflected upon this time in his life, Washington wrote, At first I thought I would succumb, but I had a strong tower to lean upon, my wife, a woman of infinite tact and wisest counsel. Indeed, Emily's skills would be essential in completing the Brooklyn Bridge. Shortly after her husband was stricken, Emily found herself convincing the New York Bridge Company, the foundation supervising and funding the bridge, that although her husband was sick, he could continue functioning as chief architect. With help from his wife, Washington wrote extensive directions, which Emily relayed to the assistant engineers. By the spring of 1872, however, it was clear that Washington was not getting any better. The couple left for Germany for six months, hoping that this would help him recover, but the effort failed. So when they got back to the United States, they moved to their family home in Trenton, New Jersey, or I should say to Washington's family home in Trenton, New Jersey. By then, Washington's eyesight had begun to fail, so for the next three years, it was Emily who wrote daily letters directing the assistant engineers. All of this, of course, was done in her husband's name, but it's hard to believe that a man who could not see was directing the project independently. By 1876, the towers and anchorages were complete. As work began on steel cables, closer supervision would be required. At this point, the Roeblings moved into a house in Brooklyn Heights, about half a mile from the bridge. They selected their residence largely because it offered an unobstructed view of the bridge that would allow Washington to view and direct the construction from the comfort of his home. It was Emily, however, who actually went down to the worksite every day. She was pretty much the only person who actually ever saw Washington. In theory, she read his correspondence to him and wrote out his responses, but it's not difficult to believe that Emily, whom everyone acknowledged was a bright woman, was coming up with some of these responses on her own. When questions arose at the work site, she demonstrated her competence in mathematics, engineering, stress analysis, and cable construction. There were some who came to suspect that it was Emily, not Washington, who was really directing the project. Now here, Emily truly is remarkable. She was living in an era when women simply were not engineers. In fact, by most accounts, Emily Warren Roebling could be considered the first female field engineer. Most people in her era believed that women were biologically suited only to be mothers and wives, and that they did not have the capacity to understand intricate concepts. Emily was not, of course, the only woman proving them wrong, but her obvious role in building the Brooklyn Bridge did inspire some anxiety, even though everything she did, Emily did in her husband's name. Because of the role Emily was taking in building the bridge, Seth Lowe, the new mayor of Brooklyn, which was incidentally a separate city from New York at this time, attempted to fire Washington Roebling in 1881. The next year, Emily was called before the American Society of Civil Engineers to justify her husband's continued supervision of the building project. She was the first woman ever to appear before the society, and yet she was viewed by all to be elegant and respectable. Her husband was allowed to retain his position as chief engineer. 
When the bridge was nearly completed, Emily was invited to be the first one to cross it. She crossed it again when it formally opened in May 1883, meeting President Chester A. Arthur in the middle of the bridge while her husband watched from home. The Roeblinks had done it. It took 14 years, but the Brooklyn Bridge was finished, and it was now time to return to some normalcy. By 1888, John the II had graduated from university, and he was married the following year, so Emily was no longer bound by her role as mother. She became active in many women's groups in the New York area and took a leading role in redesigning the family estate in Trenton. Still eager to prove that women had every bit as much mental capacity as men, Emily enrolled in law school at NYU in 1899, graduating with high honors and even winning an award for $50 for her essay entitled A Wife's Disabilities, which argued passionately that wives should be considered equal to their husbands before the law. Emily died in 1903 at the age of 58. Washington would live for another 23 years. Although Emily received limited recognition for her work, usually operating as she did in her husband's name, she demonstrated beyond a doubt that the skills a woman could acquire, and it is largely due to her influence that the Brooklyn Bridge was completed. It is only fitting, therefore, that the bridge is dedicated to her. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.